can music journalism be a form of activism? Can magazines wear their social values on their covers? And is there a way in which the music industry can not just promote product, but push ideas? These are some of the questions I've been wrestling with, and I couldn't think of anyone better to speak to about all of these things than Laura from The Big Issue. I spoke to her from our home in Glasgow, and allow me to introduce this series, how I introduced it to Laura. I'll give you a little bit of background about the series. So Drone and Sound turned 23 at the start of this month, and I am considering bringing it back. When I started Drown and Sound, we basically did what the Melody Maker were doing online. It was somewhere between a fanzine and a magazine, and it really made sense what it was. And now I'm at this point of, I did social media for the BBC for four years, and I could write three paragraphs about a Jeff Buckley album on Facebook, and it'd be read by far more people than if I published it pretty much anywhere on the internet. <laughs> um, because it got shared and it engaged people, and people responded, and they shared their own responses, which was one of the things I loved about the early days of the site. It was kind of like a forum that you could, it was like a magazine that you could react to. And then that just turned into trolling and nastiness and especially put off women wanting to write for us because the misogynistic comments were far worse than anything that was tolerable. And I totally understood. And we got rid of it. We were one of the first sites to get rid of our comments. So we sort of like pioneered with something way back in the year 2000 and then just like dumped it because it just didn't feel right for the times. So I've been thinking a lot about where journalism is headed. Um, economically culturally like how how it's going to be valuable to the artists especially because i'm releasing records and things just don't have an impact (laughs) like you can send stuff out and you can get 30 bits of press on places which hardly anybody's reading or they are reading but they're not clicking on the things they're not familiar with um you can get tons of kind of people retweeting stuff and sharing on instagram but then like the spotify plays don't seem to change or the YouTube plays don't change. And the whole point of the series is I'm talking to different people, TikTokers. Um, I've spoken to Jimmy from Run- Running Punks who does these hilarious reviews where he just like rants and raves about records whilst running um, and super cuts it into YouTube videos. I'm speaking to a reporter from um, NBC. I'm talking to, so like to try and look at it from different angles. So I guess what my first question for you really, um, what would be your definition of what journalism is? Okay, so I've been thinking about this a lot. I think I'm going to go with it's discovering and telling stories that allow people to better understand and engage with the world around them. And important in that to me is telling the truth with empathy. That's a really interesting answer. The truth with empathy. Because that, yeah... That, t- that takes it from just being the truth and facts to something which engages and emotionally engages people. Because I guess for years we've had that problem of like facts and feelings being people care more about how they feel about something than the actual reality of it. Yeah, that's a really good answer. We'll come back to that at the end. Um, so um, I guess to begin with, you should introduce yourself. What's your name? Where'd you come from? <laughs> So I'm Laura Kelly. I'm the culture editor of the Big Issue magazine, which probably tells you a little bit about why the truth with empathy is important to me. Um, I've been working with the Big Issue on and off since I left university. And so it's really shaped who I am as a person and as a journalist. 
Um, it's a UK-based magazine. We've been running for more than 30 years. And in the UK, our distribution model is pretty unique. Um, the people who sell the magazine are some of the most marginalised people in the UK. Many of them have experienced homelessness or other forms of um, social exclusion. And by selling the magazine, they have the opportunity to make an income. And it's been one of the great privileges of my professional career that I've had the opportunity to speak to so many of those people and to hear about their their lives and be um, trusted with them uh, by them sorry to, to tell to tell their stories so that's yeah that's kind of the the background I come from I have always been or mostly been on the kind of cultural side of things music is very much my first love um, and I was, yeah, I mean, I was a kid that grew up reading smash hits. And I think that that very much also has informed who I am as a mm. person and as a journalist. So humor is very important to me and kind of being a wee bit cheeky with people, particularly those who are in positions of authority. Um, I'm not sure if that was a good introduction, but that's a lot of the things mm. I've been thinking that's about. pretty good. <laughs> I like the fact that you grow up reading smash hits and you're re- wearing a Cure hoodie. That's a journey of a person. Oh, well, oh, <laughs> but I always loved smash hits for like the, the articles about the Manics. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> so I, I was always like a, a, a very strange um, alternative fan, but, mm. in, in, but loved just, I just loved the way that smash hits, everything that was in the charts was in it. it you know, there was no it's this genre of music or that genre of music, you would just as much get like the Cure lyrics in there as you would get, you know, the latest Kylie Minogue thing. And that kind of really egalitarian view of what culture can be, I think is is very attractive, even though I did then become an enormous melody maker snob as a teenager. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think I was a technically a melody maker snob. Um, yeah, I, I kind of wonder whether Smash Hits invented alt pop before it was a subgenre on Spotify, like way back in the, the 90s, it probably would have been, where there was that just crossover between artists that were popular but weren't necessarily making pop music and but probably thought they were making pop music when they were making their singles and making art when they were making their albums and i think there's a interesting that could be the entire podcast that's just talking about that i think but let's not let's talk about music journalism and where things are at um like i, I was also thinking and i had a quick look through some of the things you've written like you've interviewed like vivian westwood and like you've you've interviewed these huge people who have big stories to tell. Do you want to just quickly talk through like what you hoped to do when you started out writing and what you've been able to do? Like a few of your in your, this is your uh, big brother credits. Um, these are your best bits. <laughs> oh, that, oh God. I've been doing it so long now. Mm-hmm. Um, when I, when I started, I, I just wanted to tell stories. I've always wanted to tell stories. There's, I mean, I, I always go back to this. There's a photograph of me when I'm about four or five years old. And I'm sitting at my grandmother's desk. Um, she was hot desking. She didn't have her own desk, mm. but she was hot desking <laughs> at the BBC. Um, she was a journalist. And I'm mm. sitting, I had, I had a big typewriter, an old school typewriter, pretending to be a journalist, pretending to tell stories. And I've always just wanted to talk to interesting people and tell their stories. And I, for me, musicians are some of the most interesting people that we have. And artists are some of the most interesting people that we have because they truly engage with what it is to be human and what it is to live in the world that we live in um, and also in activism and changing that world for the better. 
and that's been something that's always been really interesting to me. So I've always wanted to do that and just tell people's stories. Musicians often put an emotional soundtrack to the truth. So that goes back to your first answer. Yeah, emotion that you're going to get emotion from me. I'll warn mm. you about that. There's definitely emotion coming. Um, so yeah, I, so I always wanted to do that and I always wanted to tell people stories. And the great thing about journalism is if you ask people questions, they sort of have to answer you. And that to me was like, you know, a, a kid in a toy box immediately. So oh God, who's been some, what's been some of the, the most interesting people? Um, I can only ever really remember the ones that I've done really recently. So yeah. on Friday, I was talking to Duran Duran about Halloween. And I tell you, wow. like that was just such an absolute joy. I'm a huge Halloween fan. Mm. And they were like, they were so, so much sweeter and more charming and lovely than I could have ever anticipated. So that was great fun. Um, I guess, yeah, no, one of my greatest moments was uh, I got to interview Courtney Love Um face-to-face -face in London um, in her hotel room which was a complete riot um, and as a you know as a, as a kid she she was so important to me because she broke all of the rules and she made rock and roll possible for a, a for a girl of my age and um, because it just wasn't it was all men and uh, you know and and she just did that with such fearlessness um, and to her great detriment. So she's she's an enormous hero of mine because she just she took all of that on the chin and she didn't stop fighting, which I think is incredible. And she was super fighty in the interview, yeah. which was a pure delight. Um, and then she tried to kidnap me to take me to the Jonathan Ross show. Uh, <laughs> but, but I would have missed my flight and my editor would have actually killed me. Mm. So I did not do that. I, I escaped. Um, so yeah, that was a brilliant one. Um, else has been really interesting that I was speaking to? Oh, I did. Um, oh, God. So, oh yeah, I went to a food bank recently with Sam Fender and uh, he's he's another incredibly delightful hugely intelligent and emotionally engaged person um who just really cares about stuff and i find that a very attractive quality in a person and he literally showed up just before christmas and helped mm. pack up all of the christmas meals that were going out to people um and that was a, that was such a brilliant feature because it was an entirely different way to to come at his story and he really opened up like we did the interview in the storeroom of the food bank afterwards and so stuff like that where you're doing something unusual with someone who's really interesting and you know and, and he was able to talk about his own story of of growing up with very little and and i and i think that i think it's kind of an important story to tell um so yeah that's a very bad i also had a day where i got to meet johnny depp and helena bonham carter and tim burton but that was really just fun for me. I'm not sure that that was a journalistic high point, but it was very much yeah. a fun point for me. <laughs> so a very mixed, very mixed CV. Um, so I reached out to you because partly because I've read your stuff for years. Like I must have read some of your writing in the skinny in places mm. going back when I loved every time I go to Glasgow picking up the skinny because it was such a great magazine to just like, and I was like, I should probably just have subscribed to it because it just felt like it had a, such a different take on the world. Yeah. Um, similar to Loud and Quiet, which I really love for similar reasons, but feeling both like a local magazine, but looking at the world of music. So it was kind of, 
it's, it's interesting to find those local publications. Anyway, that's a whole, whole aside. But you've got a new campaign about venues and it's called Venue Watch. Um, and you interviewed Steve Lamack about it last week. And But you're interviewing lots of venues. Do you want to tell, tell everyone what it's about? Yeah. I don't know how much your listeners are aware of this. And frighteningly, um, there's been a recent study that showed like half of people do not even know this. But venues are in crisis. Grassroots music venues are in a really severe crisis. A crisis like unlike any they have ever faced before. Um, so in the last year, you had the most successful year ever for live music. So, I mean, the most money coming in, it's been absolutely incredible. And that, But that's kind of primarily at the top end. So your Elton John's bringing in over £700 million, you know, all of those sorts of things. Um, massive Taylor Swift tours, all of that. But at the same time, across the UK, there was more than two venues closing every single week grassroots music venues closing Mm -hmm. every single week and what that does is it cuts the music industry off at the knees you're left with no pipeline to come through uh you know i I talked to people at music venue trust who who are doing brilliant work on this and a lot of them talk about it as like the r&d of the music industry um and then I, i actually chaired a panel at beyond the music um which is a brilliant new conference and festival in manchester that looks at the future of the music industry. Mm. And we sat down with um, people from the biggest venues in Europe. And literally the person from the AO Arena, which is currently the biggest venue in Europe, she said, look, we're getting natural stoppages because there aren't the bands coming through. So these are are the people in the big venues. They're even recognising the importance of these venues for giving people their first chance to get up on a stage first chance to sign check and play in front of people and make that huge leap from the rehearsal studio to being a performing band and so those places do that for the music industry but I would say equally importantly they also bring people together in communities they offer employment opportunities they offer um they also have a huge importance and bringing people into town centres in a lot of places wherever the high street is struggling. You know, these are places that people will come into as tourists, as visitors, Mm. and then they will spend money in the businesses around them. So they multiply their value whenever you've got somewhere like that that can can really add to a community. And yeah, and community, there you go. There's the other other word that's really, really important. They do, they build these communities for people. Um, where like-minded people can come together, and you know, I know that you know you mentioned that Steve Lamarck chat. You know, he was talking about how you get a venue in a place like that, and all of a sudden you've got six bands, and you've got. And he talked about his ability when he first went in um, to a venue in Harlow, talking about you know that he just was got an education in music and politics yeah. and loads of different things, and that's certainly an experience that I recognise. So that's a bit about importance and a little bit about the kind of the crisis that which, we're in. Which I totally empathise with. One of my first jobs in music was working in my local venue in Weymouth and in Dorset. Um, I built the venue website because they didn't have one. And then I got a job booking the acts on a Friday night for a club night and DJing at the same time and working behind the bar, which was quite a lot. Um, and I learned so much, but the venue had already become somewhere where like all my friends had formed a band just to try and get a gig there. And I think it's hard to forget the unachievable and attainable goal for a lot of artists. And then to see bands come through, which six months down the line, they're playing 
like big kind of college shows or arena shows. Um, like one of the first gigs I booked was the Cooper Temple Clause and they went on to become this like phenomenon that some of my friends that I watched them with in this tiny basement venue in Dorset, we watched played halfway up the stage at um, Reading Festival. Um, and it's like, and I think seeing that possibility, like even though the concept for meritocracy in this country is kind of quite warped, but you can physically see someone go from, I read about them in Melody Maker last week, then I watched them play and now they're on top of the pops. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you said meritocracy in there and that's that's kind of the idea of class and of opportunity is obviously really important and, and a big reason why this campaign means so much to us at The Big Issue. Because we've always been about that. We've been about opportunity being available to everybody and, and it not just being a... Because um, culture doesn't belong to, to rich people. Culture doesn't... No. And music shouldn't belong to, to people who are wealthy. And traditionally, music has been one of the art forms that has been the most accessible to working class kids and ordinary kids to just pick up a guitar and, and start or, yeah. you know, or... You know, it's or now obviously now it seems even easier. Like that they can be making stuff on their computers and their bedrooms. There's that sense, but you need these venues to be able to to get that pipeline through for that to become not just something that you can do privately, but something and you can do that on, has an impact. On, on that note, it's something like sixteen percent of people that work in the creative industries are working class as well. Which, coming from that background, I always I'm always astounded by. It's actually, I, it sometimes feels lower when I've been in meetings or been in different places, but without the grounding that I had of working in a venue, working in a record shop, coming to London and having a housemate who'd like started a print magazine because in Melbourne they had loads. And when I, he came to London and there was the fly and he was like, this is kind of not great. We need to do something proper. Um, we did like our first cover of Henry Rollins, which kind of set the tone for what it was. Um, and... I've always found that concept of of the venue and the record shop I worked in really empowered me because they allowed me to feel like I learned a lot, but I learned a lot of things about music, which then I could have conversations with people about music. I learned about customers that would come in that would buy a Frank Zappa album every week because that's all they could afford was one album each week. So they decided to buy the whole Frank Zappa catalogue, one record at a that's time. That's beautiful. And some weeks they'd come in saying that last record was terrible, but I'm still going to buy another one this week because I hear this one's a bit better. <laughs> um, and like people would come in and like, I'd be wearing a Deftones t-shirt behind and they'd be like, what else do I listen to if I like Deftones? And I'd be like pointing them towards records, which like Machine Head and Coal Chamber and things. And then you'd get someone come in and they'd be humming a song and it was like the Britney Spears single. And I would like, I'd have to like work like Shazam to try and figure out what they were doing. And but that sense of all of these things exist within one space was, I I think, quite invaluable because when I moved to London, I'd promoted shows so I could start doing that and I could start working for a booking agent. And But that was all just from a tiny grassroots kind of connections I'd made through just badgering people on email because <laughs> I was lucky enough to have a computer. And I think it's difficult for people that have come from money to understand even a few weeks working somewhere like that, the difference it can make and the fact that we don't have um, apprenticeships for music 
essentially. Yeah. People get, and it's like the amount of people I know that were in bands around that time. Like, for instance, I always think about the fact that Warpaint are managed by Cedric, who's in a band called Remy Zero, who are probably best known for doing the music to Smallville. But I loved that band when I was like in 1998 or whenever it was when they put records out. Um, and a lot of the people you see that come through the industry, they've been people that have been in bands that have played smaller venues that have got a decent amount of experience and they've gone on to like manage someone that's become a global star or um or they helped out their brother's band once and now they're like managing like stadium bands and things and i think those those things that a venue can do are really important anyway sorry i cut you off midway but i just thought i'd underscore the importance of venues no and that's i mean yeah, and I, I think absolutely that. It's that sense of that ability to have that first toehold, which seems so impossible if you don't, mm. you know, if you don't come from money, as you say, that, and you don't have someone who knows someone who knows someone that can get you in for six months that your parents can yeah. afford to pay for you to live in London for at some, you know, I always think of it from a journalism point of view, but like, you know, get you in get you in to work at the NME for six months and, and your yeah. parents can pay for your, your accommodation or whatever. If you don't have that, the, the little bits to have a toehold in somewhere, um, and I know that you mentioned the Skinny Skinny does a lot of that for a lot mm. of people up here. It's a great first place to be um, working for a lot of people. But yeah, that, so that sense of a toehold is, is just absolutely vital and it's where we get the talent of the future. And, and there's, there's, I mean, there's two things in that for me. The first is just that everybody should have that opportunity and it's just fundamentally wrong to not have that. But it's also about actually the conversations that we are able to have in our society. And if we are only hearing the voices of people from privileged backgrounds instead of hearing the voices of people from all sections of society, then we are not going to be able to reflect on ourselves or reflect on our society or reflect on our values or get better in any way if we don't have those things. So it is, I mean, that my, my ideas of art are, I know quite highfalutin, but I think that that's the power art has, is the ability to, to allow us to reflect on ourselves and reflect on the ways that we can be better. And, and also so, to yeah. be able to refract all experiences of society, because otherwise you only get, because like the amount of people I've met that are heads of record companies or running magazines that have come from very privileged backgrounds, you get their idea of what culture is. And that's quite warped. Like I remember the reason I didn't like NME growing up, because a lot of the writers were so cultured that I felt in, excluded from the conversation um, and I know the Melody Maker probably was a bit like that too, but I think there was a lot more emotion to the writing. So I think I connected and like would see someone list a whole bunch of bands that they were referencing and then go listen to those bands yeah. if I could. Which, as you or, say, was so much harder then because we had yeah. to pay eighteen ninety nine for a CD. <laughs> or Napster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wait, wait overnight for a track to download and it's cost about £15 in um, penny a minute phone calls. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that the importance of venues and the importance of the campaign you're doing, the, the, the big question I really wanted to ask you was about how music can become activism and be something that actually changes things. Because I think so much of what goes out into the world, and this just before we, we came on, you asked me why I thought the difference between editorial and journalism. Because I think 
editorial platforms things it tells its story it recommends things it's really good at being a positive force in the world for kind of corporate commercial product or things which have not got the backing that a magazine can shine a light on um it can guide you towards things to go watch it can like and i think journalism is different to that because i think journalism as you said it's the empathy and the truth it's often the story that people don't want to be told it's often the things which are inconvenient truths i guess is the al gore way of of explaining it yeah like the things that the world could investigate if they had the time but if a journalist goes out and looks into it and tells the story and makes people care about it then things can change and i thought with this campaign it was a really great example of putting your resource energy time creativity behind something which is important so i just wondered whether you accept the premise of this idea of these kind of tandem worlds of editorial is not quite the right word i mean trying to find the right word because like not everything's puff pieces and not everything's like record reviews and like a, a record review isn't is a subjective opinion it's not necessarily the truth and i think that's again like going back i think it was really great that you used the word truth in your first answer because i think it's so key so i'm just meandering now because i don't really have an exact question so do you do you feel like especially somewhere like the big issue where its social values are worn on its both its sleeve and its front cover like do you think that that's really important to be able to to try and in, inject change into the world yeah i mean we we have a, a kind of we all got in a room not long not long ago and thrashed out what our editorial identity was and what our values were and yeah and that kind of sense of being change makers is right at the heart of it definitely um because i mean you you can't you can't work at the big issue and not see how many things are broken so many mm. so many things are broken i mean to me a society is broken if anyone is without a home that's yeah. that's a that's a fundamental sense of a place being broken and especially when you've got a prime minister that's got swimming pools and yeah like that's the things are broken when the wealth is going to the top yeah and yeah it's like, and i think the music industry has that problem too but i think it's just a reflection of society i would absolutely agree with you there and that and again that's that's why this makes sense for us because it is you know a lot of people have asked me it's like oh okay so why why is this a, why is this a big issue campaign and i think it is it's all the stuff we've been talking about it's about inequality it's about opportunity it's about you know injecting community into things and those are all of the real core values that we have um and th- thank you very much for for the nice words about it i do think that it's important because what we're doing every week and i actually haven't i've talked about why we're doing what we're doing but what, what we actually are doing every week is, see this is why you're a proper journalist <laughs> <laughs> what we're actually doing every week is that we're telling the story of a venue so the end of every week you'll get a story that tells you why this place is important why this place um what they have achieved in their community and for, for and that and that can be both community geographically and also kind of musically i suppose mm-hmm. um so what what why they matter in that way and also the struggles that they're facing um and i'm working with um, a guy called phil ryan who's uh was actually one of the founders of the big issue alongside john bird 
um, and has worked to, you know, he's worked in the music industry a really, really long time, toured with some amazing people, used to run his own club. And he, so he's a real um, industry expert. So I basically do the storytelling and then he does a bit of analysis and that's kind of how we we work it out every week. But the stories are just amazing. Like, I, you know, I've, I've, I've done a few more interviews than there are up, um, just not actually a good lot more interviews than there are up just now. And every time you think, oh, well, you know, that there'll just be it'll just be a story about a nice venue not not one yet has just been that so the mm. the first one's a place called the courthouse in bangor and um in northern ireland and they've transformed the city like <laughs> so you know they, they, they've <laughs> they've taken it the place it become effectively a dormitory town for belfast and had no cultural venue whatsoever and mm. they've now got this beautiful cultural venue and you're starting to see it bring the, this, the time back to life. Side note, Bangor being the first place that I went whenever I was a, a, a kid on a guides trip and bought um, Friday I'm in Love, the single, um, and From Despair to Wear, the single. So Bangor, the music in Bangor is weirdly important to my yeah, life. I can imagine. <laughs> it's a great way to start it as well then. Yeah, like right. Like those are those are great. Because um, I, th- I think Bangor is where Hannah Peel lives as well and she was telling me about one of the festivals that's there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll be, um, it'll be the same people that run the, the venue. They started mm. out They started out as, um, as a festival and then they've now, they've now become this this, this venue. So, that, so there's that. Then there, like the one in Scotland that I did this week. or so, Yes, it was this week. Yeah. Mm. Um, and they were talking about how they'd they'd had a, a young teenage girl who'd been um, had to use a wheelchair to get around. She had a life limiting condition, um, and because they were this independent venue, and they saw her coming in, they saw her writing about it on her blog. They just said to her, "Do you want to promote a show?" So she ended mm. up promoting shows, and it's really really sad. But the um, she she passed away um, just recently, and they had her funeral in the venue. Wow. That's how much that that venue mm. meant to her and to like that her family were like her, you know, her, her short life mm. and the incredible things that she'd achieved. They wanted to celebrate it in that venue. So it's, I mean, every time they do one of these chats, it's like a proper, yeah. proper punch. And that, um, and, but the, these are people who don't necessarily, as you say, have the, the time, the expertise to, the platform to tell their own story but we can Mm. tell that story for them and therefore make them i hope places that people will go and seek out you know so if they're visiting northern ireland they'll go visit the courthouse if they're in scotland they'll go down to galashiels and visit macarts if they're in london they'll go to you know they'll go visit the windmill or you know they'll go to these places because they have been told a story about it Mm. and and i i do believe in storytelling as a powerful force and it's actually one of the other themes that's come up in this series was I interviewed a TikToker. Um, I interviewed a few, but TikTok's come up a few times. And that, I, that idea that self-esteem talked about last year about how she was essentially interviewing herself endlessly to try and create content. And I think it's, I mean, it's, it's a road to burnout for most artists. It's a self-awareness and self-reflection, which I think can quickly be quite damaging. Not to mention people anyone with body's dysmorphia or something having to sit and edit videos of themselves that is not a good place for people to be but if you're a venue and you're cleaning the pipes and like i'm the venue i worked in the guy used to be there at 6 a.m like we'd finish at 3 3 a.m a lot of the time and he'd be back at 6 a.m 7 a.m bottling up being there for the deliveries and the collections cleaning and the toilets all that stuff yeah, yeah. 
like making sure and like I'd arrive at the venue say four o'clock it was spotless like every like and you'd think like the night before it was like drinks built everywhere and and I know that that's what those venues are built to do but it always still amazed me that like and I sometimes go to venues now and they're like drawings on the walls and all that kind of horrible stuff like the I don't really want to call out any venues but I went on the tour with the Anchoress for two two stints this year and one of the venues I didn't even want to sit in the backstage area it just felt like and I'm not being snobby about it it's just like I mean a few nights before a band had had a fight there and it did look like there was potentially blood on the wall and it was like that's not good and but that was like four days before (laughs) like no one had been in and like and like some of the loadings but you're like loading up four flights of stairs and you're like we've now got to sound check then we've got an hour to eat and then we've got to perform for like 300 people. And it's, I mean, I say we, I was just selling the merch, but, um, but I think that sometimes these venues have not got the ability to stop and tell their story to like, some venues are quite good at kind of marking off that Gomez and Coldplay played there and having those posters up and telling those bits of the story, which actually might not mean as much to, like, I, I always think I have to keep updating the Drown and Sound story of like, well, we did do all these things with like Foles and Block Party, but equally we put on one of Kano's first shows and it's like now that culturally means a lot more probably than yeah. it did for the five years after it happened. And it's fascinating to me that venues, are some of them are still there, but the ones that are disappearing... I feel like what you're doing is very much that you don't know what you've got till it's gone. And I think one of the big things I kept hearing from promoters was, well, we've had two years of students not even being at university. So they've not come out and discovered us. Yeah, They've not ended up coming for the two pound shot student night and then discovering that we've got gigs on every Tuesday afternoon or Tuesday evening or whatever it would be. Um, and I think that's obviously been quite a big thing for university towns. Um, but I see the orders come in for records that we've been selling over the last few weeks. They are not in those big cities. They are in small towns that don't have any music scene and it's kind of baffling. Um, But whereabouts do you see like other campaigns that you've done or seen elsewhere where like I often think back to some of the first mu- from some of the first writing I really loved was Hunter S. Thompson's campaign trail writing in Rolling Stone, but it wasn't really about music. Occasionally, music would be mentioned in it, um, and I just loved it because it was such vivid writing, which for a fifteen-year-old boy in search of things that read as strongly as like a Clockwork Orange, then like that was my way into a lot of music journalism. Um, what sort of examples and, and what's given you the impetus to kind of to use what is essentially your job to try and do something that changes things? I mean, I guess that's it's it's what I've always seen the point of my job mm. as being. I don't think there's any point in telling people stuff if it doesn't make them feel that they want to do something. And so that's that's kind of always been right there for me and I like I have seen I get I guess I've been inspired so much by the stuff that I've seen happen at Big Issue a lot of the time because I've been lucky enough as I said to have conversation with vendors whose lives have been transformed by this uh, project 
and by kind of, you know by storytelling in its broadest sense of that that giving them a product that goes mm. out, but also we well, also giving them a product worth buying. Like and that yeah, like of yeah. all the things that like I think it's such I've always thought it's a great thing. I remember the big issue seller that used to, that used to stand in my town center outside the MS. And like my mum would always buy a copy of it and there would always be interesting stuff in it. And it's like, that's, it's not just you're putting together a magazine and giving them any old nonsense to, to sell. You're having to track those big names down and get them to commit and get them to understand why they're doing an interview there. And like, it always surprises me more artists don't do their exclu- like their big exclusive first interviews with you because it feels like it's where it should be. Yeah, I mean, I, we we punch. I would yeah. say we 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 punch pretty well for our weight. Um, in terms of um, and the people who do come to us, they do tend to be people like Sam Fender or like you know a lot of people or like Vivian Westwood who have a social con conscience mm. and want to you know and want to speak to us and want and see the value of that platform and see that what they are doing when they speak to us is actually supporting our vendors. Like the very action of support of speaking to us and giving us something that's worth buying is a you know is a, po- a net positive that yeah. they're able to give into the world as well as as well as you know promoting whatever it is they're they're talking about. And I think that's really valuable. But I think th- I think what we also do, and I have seen change in this, because you know, monitoring change is really difficult in in three journalism, as you will know yourself. Mm-hmm. Um but I have cha- seen change in the way the general public think about our vendors in the last in the in the years that I've worked at the big issue. Like, so I always use, um, and this is not meant as a slight on taxi drivers, but just as a kind of average person that you just mm. generally speak to. Um, I use a bit of this, the taxi driver test, and I used to not tell taxi drivers where I worked when I first was working there. You know, in the in the kind of, um, you know. 2000 to 2005 2000 you know to by 2012 whatever that was quite frequently I wouldn't bother telling them because you would just get a lot of really really ill-informed quite prejudiced unpleasant chats and that you know I use taxi drivers as the example but it's like it was you know sort of anyone that Mm. you would come into contact with there was a lot of really horrendous opinions out there um you know like a lot of stuff about like oh well they've got nice trainers so what are they doing you know, I shouldn't give them any money or they've got, you know, in the early, or they've got a mobile phone. And you're like, yeah, how else do you think mm-hmm. that they managed to exist or stay in contact with anyone or access government services or anything? Yeah. It's literally impossible to live without it. So there was a lot of that. And I think we've done which is Which amount. is the right-wing media's way of joining drug use, crime to homelessness. It's like, it's not that someone's, fallen out the edge of the system and there's not been any safety net to catch them it's very much like a system that there's people that believe the simplest answer to the most complex of questions as if like someone wants to be living their life without any without knowing where they're going to sleep tonight yeah yeah and I, and just this sense of like oh they're all trying to trick you i'm going to tell you selling the big issue is not an easy job mm. i have done it as a you know as a kind of to try and understand as a journalist and it's really hard it's really hard and I find it really hard as uh, someone who's been fortunate enough to have a university education someone who's fortunate enough to not look like I slept on the sleep on the streets last night because I didn't have to and it was still really really hard it's people do not want to look you in the eye mm. um, 
a lot of the time. And that was, again, though, I think that's some of the stuff that we have really started to change. And we've done that through telling our vendors stories. Yeah. So that's, and it, it's been a slow process, but I think that there is, there is a difference now and it is not seen the same way now as it was 20 years ago. There's a big, big difference. And that's, that to me makes me hopeful to see that there has been the power of storytelling that we've changed some minds. And do you think with a campaign like Venues Watch, um, that other media can talk about it as we are doing right now, not to be meta about it. But the concept of reaching out to an audience that are not already reading what you're doing, like I always find it interesting, the amount of research, which then gets turned into editorial and some like, I felt like there was a moment when the enemy was really good at breaking a story, which then could become an easy story for the rest of the media to cover. Like yeah. running their call list or something. It was like Jack White named coolest man on earth. And it was just like an easy story for people to run. And I've seen similar with um, different organizations just being really good at finding a piece of information that just in a one-liner becomes something that someone can pin a awful right-wing column on or can write an entire thesis on like why the music industry is full of rich kids. Like, And I think having data to back it up you need the people to go out there and to do it and you need the stories to tell and retell to in order to like find the publication so i'm just curious whether the the shift in putting your values i guess to the fore has that lent on led to more coverage for the big issue and then obviously then you'd hope reciprocally more people reading it yeah absolutely yeah we do we definitely do see that so um there's a Prince William, I don't know if you mm. saw that he, he went and sold them or well, he sell the magazine, he certainly went out with one yeah. of our vendors um, and that was huge for us and we, and we saw that sell loads of magazines yeah. so it was so it was great um, I remember James O'Brien talking about going out and being a seller, because I think you do an annual day do you where celebrities go out and sell it Yeah, I was I was down yeah. with him for that <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was, he, he really went for yeah. it, it was quite funny um, but it, but but he found it really hard mm. as well. Like um, so, and people like him talking about it, I think, is a way in for a lot of different people who maybe wouldn't necessarily know. And that's it's you know it's a challenge we always have is to kind of get people to understand that it's not just a charity purchase. Mm. Um, it's a good magazine. Take yeah. the magazine. Yeah. All of that. Th those are still those are still messages that we're working on. I think again, I think they're messages that we've made a huge amount of progress on, mm. and it isn't. Um, most people do now take the magazine and that's great um, but yeah it's uh, very much what I really hope that we do is kickstart those national conversations and that's what I hope that we can do with Venue Watch is to be the people you know doing the really old fashioned journalistic work like proper mm. you know the pounding the pavement stuff yeah. go and talk to people literally just mm. go and talk to people that's, that's as I said at the beginning that's what I got into this to do. I didn't get into this to, you know, rewrite press releases. I didn't get into it to, much as I enjoy writing the column every now and again, even the columns I write, they've always had a person mm -hmm. in it. It's always got, to me, it always has to have a heart to it that's about telling somebody's story. Yeah. And the best way you can do that is going out and speaking to them. And whether that is Duran Duran or the guy who runs Mac Arts, 
those stories are really vital stories to what makes our culture mm. what it is. And I think they can be uh, entertaining and interesting and tell us a truth about the world and do all of that stuff. So yeah, I hope that by doing that and by, by ha being the person who's gone and actually spoken to all of these people and spent that time doing it, that it does make people start thinking around it and then you know make other people pick up on that and hopefully realise that there's value there that's worth protecting yeah. and that's worth celebrating. Because I guess I got two quite practical questions. Um, obviously, with things like Bandcamp and even Radiohead's pay what you want or pay what you can, um, the, the idea of like Twitch paying it forwards and like pay, paying understanding the value that you can actually pay more and all those different things I think is a bit more at least part of independent culture something that people understand but how much has the fact that we've become quite cashless not to be a like 15 minute conspiracy theory kind of person but literally the since the pandemic it feels like lots of people have switched to using their phones to pay and like I'm, I'm I think I've seen vendors with their own card readers is that now how you do things a lot of the time yeah um yeah we've we've really cashless if you'd asked me a few years back and i i when i was running so i used to um run the uh news service for the insp which is the international network of street papers mm -hmm. so that was uh, in one of the brief moments when i wasn't that big <laughs> issue and i was running that and one of the big conversations internationally at that point, um, but this is you know this is a few years back, was around cashless and the and the kind of threat of cashless. But we're people who work in street papers and who work in social enterprises, like the big issue and other street papers around the world, are massively innovative yeah. people. <laughs> like that's one of the things. And so, through various partnerships and through um, you know and, and sponsorship from various people, uh, we've we've managed to get huge numbers of card readers out to to vendors so i I'm, i don't have unfortunately the the most up-to-date figures but it, like it's been revolutionary um well i feel like we've come to, like this 20 minute conversations now hit 50 minutes on here and i don't know how much Oops. i'm going to edit out um and but i think it's been a really fascinating conversation to really understand what you do and why you do it um and where people can find it i've, I've done almost the, all the three w's there's probably yeah. more well, in proper I journalism. Would... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, the, yeah, the only thing I would say, if um, if it's all mm -hmm. right to do a little plug, if people want to know more about Venue Watch um, and to sign up to support it, which means you'll, you'll get our, we'll send you the stories, um, it's just bigissue.com forward slash Venue Watch. I'll drop so that link in the, comment, in, the, in the description <laughs> box. Um, but yeah. So, yeah. So my final question for you, as I hinted at the start, we talked about what journalism is. What do you think music journalism is and what you think it could be in the future? I think music journalism is about building that bridge between the the art and the artist and the world around. And that's the stuff that I'm always really interested in reading is the stuff that makes it, that puts it in context um, and that connects it to the world and those those are the writers that I'm interested in those are the artists that I'm interested in and it do, I mean it doesn't have to be you know we've talked a lot of kind of about campaigning and that sort of side of thing it doesn't have to be a campaigning element and it doesn't have to be a political element 
it might just be quite a human mm. thing or an emotional thing but the the music journalism that i think has real value is is one that that has that that sense of connecting you to to how it all fits together yeah. i suppose and to telling that telling that story that's I, f I feel like when i first started writing i thought every time i interview a musician i'm going to learn one of the secrets of the universe and then i started to realize they don't actually know much more than i do but they sort of do in a way that's like that that's very unique and i think the amount of times i've read an interview or interviewed someone and come away with a book to read or film to watch or um a magazine that i'd not heard of to go check out and those kind of things i think that's always been such a crucial thing and i've been thinking a lot about in the future will people care more about an idea than artists and i and I don't think that that's changing. Like, I don't think the idea of a scene or technology is, is going to replace people's first and foremost interest in the artist. We're all interested in people. Yeah, exactly. Right? That's, that's, that's what makes music journalism not any different than any other sort of journalism, yeah. is that everybody's interested in, in people. It's the, what is the, you know, talk about sex and death. Yeah, that's, that's what we all want to know about. That's why Nick Cave's so famous. <laughs> exactly. And why he's so great. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the mic drop end of the podcast. Thank you so much. <laughs> no, it's been a delight. Thank you so much for, for having a chat and apologies. Well, that's the end of episode one of season two of the Drown and Sound podcast. Thank you to Laura Kelly for joining me and sharing all of her insights into how things work. You can find the link to Venues Watch in the description of this episode and a link to read various articles that Laura's written over the years. If you spot someone selling the big issue, it's £4. £2 goes to the vendor and £2 goes into creating the magazine and distributing it and all the other costs involved. I found that fascinating. I've been Sean from Drowning Sounds. I am the producer of this show. I am the host of this show. And those are the credits. Goodbye.